Open your Bibles tonight to the book of Matthew, chapter number 6. I want to tell you what happened to me on Monday of this week. I went to, and I hope it's okay for me to tell this in light of what I'm about to be sharing. We're going to be thinking tonight about uh, our prayer place is our secret place. And here I'm fixing to be telling what happened in what's supposed to be a secretive place. But I, I think it's okay tonight the way I'm going to do this. But Monday, I went into the room of my house where I pray. And I did something I'd never, ever do when I went into the room. I closed the door behind me. And so I was sitting in my chair that I sit in to read my Bible and to have a little bit of my prayer time, and the door was closed. It's, it's very unusual that I would ever do that. And the first thing that I picked up was Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest, to begin my devotions for that day. And the title of the devotion was Prayer, battle in the secret place and the scripture that he used is the one we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 6 in fact if you want to look in verse number 6 here's the verse it says when you pray go into your room and when you have shut your door pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly and so I thought well I'm getting a literal uh, application of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer. I'm in my room that I'm always in to read my Bible. I have shut the door, and so here I am. And I don't want to read the whole devotional to you, but I want to read a few sentences tonight because I think this will kind of set the stage for where I want us to go. Oswald Chambers says this, Jesus did not say, dream about your Father who is in the secret place. But he said, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Prayer is an effort of the will. After we have entered our secret place and shut the door, the most difficult thing to do is to pray. We cannot seem to get our minds into good working order. And the first thing we have to fight is wandering thoughts. The great battle in private prayer is overcoming this, pro this problem of our idle and wandering thinking. We have to learn to discipline our minds and concentrate on willful, deliberate prayer. And I think all of us would agree with that. We've had this problem. We've been in the prayer room, door open or closed, and we've been trying to pray, and our mind is going in a thousand different directions. Having a secret stillness before God means deliberately shutting the door on our emotions and remembering Him. When we truly live in the secret place, it becomes impossible for us to doubt God. We become more sure of Him than of anything or anyone else. Enter into the secret place, and you will find that God was right in the middle of your everyday circumstances all along. Get into the habit of dealing with God about everything. And then what other sentence? Oswald says, if you will swing the door of your life fully open... And pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Every public thing in your life will be marked with the lasting imprint of the presence of God. And so Chambers is saying here that if we will spend time daily in the secret place, in our prayer place, that our lives will have the fingerprint of God on them. And so that just gripped me. I was not thinking about the sermon tonight. In fact, I didn't start thinking about the sermon tonight until about 6.30 this morning. Then I started thinking about this. But this is what came back to me, the secret place. Now, the secret place is the place 
where we meet with God. But I'm not doing a sermon tonight on how to have a quiet time or how to pray. Because according to the scripture, the secret place is more than the place where we meet with God. Although it is that. The secret place is also the way that we live our lives. In other words, think about this. We're not just supposed to have a secret place, a private place in our homes or in our apartment where we pray and meet with God. We're also, we're also supposed to live our lives in the secret place. Now, turn back to the Old Testament to Psalm 91. And this is one of my favorite, my mother's favorite psalm, favorite chapter in the Bible, one of my favorite psalms. But in Psalm 91, I want us to look at the very first verse. Now, I'm in the New King James, and I know all the translations say it slightly differently, but I like the ring of the New King James because it makes it easier for me to memorize. Psalm 90, uh, 91 and verse number 1. The psalmist said this, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And so the psalmist here is saying that we're not supposed to just have a meeting, a place where we meet with God and, and that be the secret place, but also we're supposed to dwell or we're supposed to live our lives in the secret place. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. That word dwells is talking about you live there. You, you live in the secret place. Whether you're at work, home, school, running errands, traveling out of town, whatever you do. And if we do that, we will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And so, if we are living our lives in the presence of God, an awareness, a conscious awareness of His presence, we're going to be under God's shadow, the shadow of His wings, and we'll be protected, and we will be provided for. And so tonight, as we think about the secret place, I'm trying to get us to think in two different ways. First of all, the place where we meet with God for Bible reading and prayer. Also, the way we live our lives. Think about this. If you have, let's say you spent an hour a day in the secret place, reading your Bible and praying. That's wonderful. But you still have 23 other hours that are not there. And so these 23 other hours need to also be spent in the presence of God. Now, what I want us to think about tonight is this. What happens to us when we're in the secret place? Whether it is our prayer room, whether it is our car, whether it is wherever we might be, when we're living our lives in the presence of God, what can we expect to happen in our lives? Well, I want to mention several things tonight, and I'll develop some of them, and some of them I will not spend as much time on. But first of all, what happens in the secret place? Number one, our perspective changes. When you are living your life in the presence of God, the first thing that will happen is your, pres uh, your perspective of life is going to change. Here's what you're going to find. God, in your mind and in your heart, is going to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And your problems and, and situations and what, the, the dynamics that are going on in your family's life, it's not that they're going to just go away and no longer be real problems, but they're going to just get smaller and smaller. What's the old hymn say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So the first thing that happens when we're in the presence of God is that our perspective changes. Now, turn back to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, and I want us to look tonight in verse number 6, just a little bit of a story here, because I think this is a good example 
of somebody's, somebody's eyes being opened, their spiritual eyes being opened, and their perspective changed. In 2 Kings chapter number 6 uh, and in verse number 8, I, you know, I've noticed this while, while you're finding that. I'll, I'll say this. If I'm going on a trip somewhere and I'm flying in a really big plane, I've noticed that I have more peace about the flight. But if I'm flying in one of those little planes, I can remember years ago, Jimmy Herwick and I went to Tallahassee, Florida. We flew down there, and we preached. A re we did a revival at a church near Tallahassee. And we flew from Houston to Atlanta in a big plane, had a great flight. And we got to Atlanta, and I knew we were in trouble when they started taking us to our next plane, walking across the tarmac out there. You know, you're supposed to go from the inside to the plane. Well, they had us out there, and, the, and we were loading luggage, you know, onto the plane. It was the most pitiful-looking plane I've ever seen all my life. It looked like a church van with wings. That's what it looked like to me. And I noticed that as I, or as I was looking at that plane, and I was thinking, we're fixing to be on that to Tallahassee. In my mind, I noticed this my faith got smaller. As the plane got smaller, my faith got smaller. Now, when we flew back at the end of the week and we got back to Atlanta and then got on that big plane back to Houston, my confidence in that flight got bigger. Well, that's how it is with God. The bigger God is in our minds, the more faith we have. But the bigger our problems is and, and the, the, bigger, the, the smaller God is, the more nervousness we're going to have. Now, in 2 Kings chapter number 6, the Syrians are coming to attack Israel. Look in verse number 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. Verse 14. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered. Now this is Elisha saying to his servant, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, notice what Elisha prayed. Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so Elisha prayed to God, open my servant's eyes, and he could see. And now he's seeing all these different messengers of God, the horses, the chariots of fire, all this up on the mountain. And as he saw God through his eyes, spiritual eyes, he could, now with his physical eyes he could see this, what happened? His faith grew and his confidence grew. And we need to be reminded that whatever it is we fa we're facing in life, uh, God is bigger than that. One of my favorite pictures, some People gave this to me well over 20 years ago. It is a picture of a man preaching. And behind this man, there are disciples, there's an angel, there's Jesus, and there are all these people. And they gave me that picture, and I have it here at the church in, 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 our ups, in the upstairs study. And they said, John, let it always be a reminder to you when you stand up to preach that you may not can see what's behind you, and we may not can see what's behind you. But behind you is Jesus. And behind you are the angels, and behind you are Peter and Andrew and James and John and Paul and Moses. You're preaching the same thing they preached. And so that is a, that's a good reminder. Every time I look at that picture, I think of that, that just because I can't see those people, that doesn't mean that they're not up here with me. And same's true with you. Just because you can't see the angels and Jesus and, uh, and all the 
heavenly host that is with you, that doesn't mean that they are not there. And so what happens in the secret place? First thing that happens is our perspective changes. Now the second thing that happens is sometimes our problems change. Now I think, so many, I think many of us have had experiences in life where we had a situation and we prayed for God to do something and nothing happened. And then we come to church and somebody like me says, well remember, the most important part of prayer is not getting what you pray for. The most important part of prayer is spending time with God and getting to know God. And, and it's not so much that our problems change, it is that we change. And all that's true. When we pray, we change. And the most important part of prayer, it, it is true, it's not to get our prayers answered. It is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It is to develop a relationship with God. But that being said, we need to remember that when we pray, God is listening and things do happen in our lives as a direct result of prayer. All through the Bible we see this. In the Old Testament, God parted the Red Sea in response to Moses' prayer. God gave the children of Israel water from a rock in the desert in response to Moses' prayer. Manna from heaven in response to prayer. Jesus has five pieces of bread and two fish. He prayed. They feed thousands of people and have left over. And so things happen in response to prayer. James chapter 4 and verse 2 says this. You have not because you ask not. Say that with me. You have not because you ask not. And so we need to remember, yes, when we pray, the main thing is that our perspective is changing. The main thing is that we are changing. The main thing is we're spending time in God's presence. Yes, but we also need to remember that when we pray, God is listening and God does many things in response to prayer that he never would do if we weren't praying. Some of you are here tonight. Some of us are here tonight healthy and healed in direct answer to the prayers that we and others have prayed for physical health. Others of you are here tonight and you are emotionally whole. You are mentally whole in response to answered prayer. Others are here tonight in restored relationships in response to answered prayer. And I think what happens to us in life, sometimes we pray about one of these things and it doesn't happen. And then we just think, well, the only thing that happens in prayer is I just learn to look at things differently, but nothing really happens. Friend, when you pray, both happens. When we pray, we do learn to look at things differently, but God does many things in response to prayer that he never would do if we did not pray. You believe that? Say amen. It's a true statement. And so when you pray, I say that to say, whether you're praying for a child, whether you're praying for your marriage, whether you're praying for your finances, your health, your business, your future, whether we're praying for this storm out in the Atlantic, we're praying, or the, yeah, in the Atlantic, when coming into the Gulf, we're praying for COVID, all the things that we're praying for. When we pray, we need to believe that God is listening and that God's, as God said in the Old Testament, I read this verse the other night, God's ear is not deaf and his arm is not short. And so God is more than able to not only hear our prayers, but to do things in response to our prayers that will change our lives and can change our circumstances. So remember this, when you pray, sometimes the things that we pray about, uh, whether they're a big deal or a little deal, uh, if you'll just pray about it. I'm, I feel very comfortable, well, I feel very comfortable anytime out here, but I feel especially comfortable on Wednesday night. I'll tell a silly, silly story, maybe silly, but it meant something to me. I, w I was uh, 
in the doctor's office a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, and he was giving me the results of my uh, test. And thankfully, everything came back fine. But he said, now, John, you do have on your kidney a very small cyst. It's a simple cyst. He said, don't worry about it. Probably 30 or 40, maybe half the population has it. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't amount to anything. You don't do any, there's no treatment for it. There's nothing to worry about. But I just want you to know that it is there. Showed up on the MRI, showed up on the ultrasound. And so I said, okay. And, uh, and I, I, I was fine with it. He told me there was nothing to it. Well, for the last year or more, when I do my praying, uh, this particular prayer, I try to pray six days a week. Part of my praying, I don't even try to do on Sunday because I look at it like this, and this might help somebody. Sunday is the day of corporate worship, and Sunday is the day we come together, and we're studying the Bible together, singing our praise. I'm not saying you shouldn't have your quiet time at home on Sunday. I'm just saying for me, I read less Bible and pray less on Sunday at home than I do any of the other days. And I don't feel guilty about it because I just think it's the, the, the dynamic of the day is different. All that to say, six days a week, I just, in part of my prayer, praying for the church, praying for my family, for whatever, I've been praying, God, I pray when I go get my next scan, not only will I have no tumors, no kidney stones, but I pray that cyst will just go away. And I know it doesn't mean anything, doesn't amount to anything, and I know he says they don't go away but I'm asking you to make it go away. I've been praying that. Well, I went back for a scan, for a test about a, a year or so ago, and I said, how about that uh, cyst? He said, it's still there, John, but I told you it doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. I said, okay. Well, I've just been still praying about it. Six days a week. God, I pray when I go get my next scan, everything will come back clear. You know, no tumors, no stones, no cyst. So I went a few weeks ago, and I had my scan, and I went into his office to meet with him, and he pops his scan up on the uh, screen so I can look at it. He said, John, I'll tell you what. He said, you, you should be happy. He said, scan came back clear, no tumors, and he said, you don't have any stones. I said, how about that cyst? Is it still on there? He looked at that. He said, you know what? The person who read this scan, and he said, neither one of us see that cyst. He said, that cyst is just not there. Well, now, that didn't mean anything to that doctor. But it meant something to me. Even again, it's not even a big deal. But big deal to me, big enough for me to pray about it six days a week. And I'm saying that to say when he said that to me, I knew beyond the shadow of any doubt that that thing was gone because I'd been praying for it to be gone. Now, I'm, I'm saying that story. Listen, you've had things in your life much more significant than that, and so have I. But I'm just saying we should pray about everything. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 in the uh, Living Bible. Don't worry about anything. Now watch this next part. But pray about everything. Tell God your needs, and don't forget to thank Him for His answers. So I would encourage you, whether it's a big deal or a little deal, pray about it. I think we should pray about everything. I would rather overpray than underpray. And put myself in a position to see what God might do in my life. Now, what happens when we pray? Well, sometimes our problems change. Sometimes they just go away like that. Another thing that happens when we pray is that our priorities change. Have you noticed that? When you get in the presence of God, sometimes the thing that was a big deal to you the day before, now you're in the presence of God. Now, as Oswald said, you're trying to focus your mind on God and on spiritual things and on eternity and not just the here and now. And as we begin to do that, what happens? Well, 
Our priorities change. Let me give you a scripture verse. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your mind on things above. Say that with me. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And so as we set our mind on things above, uh, it changes everything. Let me give you another scripture. Psalm 40 and verse 8. The scripture says, uh, the psalm, David said, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. Our, our priorities change. And so that's definitely one of the things that changes when we pray. It is our priorities. That in the presence of God, in the presence of God, it doesn't matter so much about how much we have or how, how much money we have. Today I was driving around at one point after lunch and I was, had the radio on and Ann Graham Lotz was preaching, Billy Graham's daughter. She was teaching, whatever, preaching, teaching, it was good, whatever you want to call it. And she was talking about heaven and all the things that are going to be in heaven and the, and the, the uh, 12 foundations and the, the, the gates of, of pearl and, and all these things. And then she did a long thing about the streets of gold. And her application of that was different than anything I'd ever heard. She said, you know, when we think about the fact that in heaven the streets have been paved with gold, she said, I think that's God's way of saying to us, all you people down there on earth think that gold and riches and money is all so important but you need to understand this when you get up here to heaven you're going to find out that I use gold for asphalt it's going to be something you walk on and what God is saying is really not that big a deal it's it's the road of heaven and so it's kind of when she said that I thought that's really a good thing so not that money is unimportant money is it is important and we need money we have to have it Jesus spoke more about money than he did uh, many other topics and we can help a lot of people with money but I'm saying we wouldn't want money or promotions or what other people think about us we wouldn't want these things to become the priority of our lives the Bible says the fear of man is a snare if I worry too much about what you think about me I may be worrying more about what you think about me than what God thinks about me and same true for you and so we, we want our priorities to be right and when we are in the presence of God our priorities change as part of my Bible reading today I read part of Matthew chapter 26 Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying on Thursday night before he was crucified and the first prayer Jesus prayed was he said father if it is possible let this cup be passed for me and then he said nevertheless not my will but yours now Jesus never had his priorities out of order his priorities were always right but Jesus was human as well as divine and Jesus did not want to die on that cross but in, in, the play, in the secret place of Gethsemane, Jesus hammered it out with the Father. He said, Father, here's my preference. If there's any way that the sins of the world can be paid for without me having to die on that cross, the physical agony, the spiritual agony being separated from you, I think that's what Jesus was dreading more than the physical pain. For the first time in all eternity, with the sins of the world on him, he knew that God the Father would turn his back on him because God's too holy to look on sin. And he would have broken fellowship with the Father. And the thought of that, the defilement that he would feel with all of our sins on him and the separation from God. And Jesus said, Father, is there any way we can do this without my dying on that cross? Let this cup be passed. But as he continued to pray, there in God's presence, nevertheless, not my will, 
but yours be done. So our priorities change. And this is, this is, we're all works in progress there. And I'll tell you something else that changes. And as I was praying this sermon today, this is the most interesting thing. I think in the, in the secret place of God's presence, whether that's in the prayer room, and I know some people call the prayer room the war room, and it is a war room. There's a sense in which that's true. We're doing spiritual battle in when we pray. And I understand that. It is spiritual warfare. And that's part of what prayer is. But don't just think of your prayer time as a war room because I wouldn't want to see you the whole time you're praying thinking about the devil. Right? I mean, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. I, I think of my prayer room as a war room, but I also think of it as a worship room. I think of it as a sweet place. In other words, if your entire concept of prayer, this is spiritual warfare, well, I think you may be thinking more about the devil than you are about God. That's part of it. But part, when I go in the presence of God, I, I don't have my mind filled with the devil. I have my mind filled with God and that I'm in his presence and he is there with me. And in the presence of God, in that secret place, and also he who dwells, she who dwells in the secret place, in our lives as we're living in the, pre in, the aware in the conscious awareness of God's presence, I'll tell you what's going to change. In time, not immediately, but in time, our personality changes. Our personality changes. Now, you may never have thought about that, but I can assure you that it is true. Now, let's just turn to the book of Romans, chapter number 8, because I could just reference this or quote it, but I want you to see it, and you probably have it marked in your Bible. But I want you, if you don't, I want you to mark it. If you're a Bible underliner, this is one to mark. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Now, we all have verse 28 marked in, my li in, in our Bibles. I'm looking at mine right now. And by Romans 8, 28, let me see. One, two, three. I have seven, I think I'm counting seven different dates through the years that I have dated Romans 8, 28, going through different things. And I've claimed that Romans 8, 28 on that issue. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. One of the greatest promises in the Bible. But look at verse 29. Because this is the good that God has in mind. For whom He foreknew, that is, God knew you before you were born. He did. He knew you. Jeremiah 1.5, God said to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born... I sanctified you. I appointed you or I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And that's an interesting thing. And uh, that's what God has done. So God knew us. But, look, but he said, he also predestined. Say, John, do you believe in predestination? Yes, I do, because it's right here in the Bible. But a lot of people don't understand predestination. Predestination is talking about God is predestining uh, he, well, he's chosen us to be saved, but he's, the idea of predestination here is that he has predestined us to become like Jesus. Look, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It is God's will for your life that you become progressively more like Jesus. That is God's will for your life. I think we think about God's will for our life, and in our minds, God's will is where I live, where I work, and all the, and that, that, is, that is part of God's will. I'd be the first to say. But the most important part of God's will is that you and I are becoming progressively more like Jesus. And, uh, and, and I have to remind myself, let me pause and ask you this question tonight. 
Here we are in, uh, in August of 2021. A good reference point is March of 2020 when COVID entered the world, or in, we, when we really found out about it. Would you say that you are more like Jesus now than you were then? Would you say you're less like Jesus now than you were then? Or would you say you're just about the same? Well, I mean, you've got to be one of the three, and most likely you're, one, you're not just the same. You're either more or less, because in the spiritual life we don't stay still. But what I'm saying is that God wants to change even our personality. Now, I want to clarify this, and then I want to develop it. I'm not saying that if you're a sanguine, God wants to make you a melancholy. I'm not saying that God's going to change your personality in that way. When God made you, He made you how He made you. So I'm not saying He's going to change your personality type. If you're an extrovert, that doesn't mean God's going to make you an introvert. If you're a shy person, that doesn't mean God's going to make you an extroverted, uh, outgoing person. I'm not, he could do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying within the personality type that you are, God wants to still make you into the image of Jesus within that personality type. Now, I've, I've jotted down some things, and this is interesting. I don't know if this is interesting to you, but this is very interesting to me, uh, how God wants to change our personality. And I want to give you four things to jot down uh, tonight. First of all, how does God change our personality? How does God, you know, smooth the rough edges? How does God conform us more into the image of Jesus? Well, first thing I would say is God slows us down. God slows us down. Let me give you some scripture. Psalm 46.10. God said, be still and know that I am God. It doesn't matter what your personality type is. If you are always in a hurry, physically and mentally. You know, one of the things I've added to my praying, I've said, God, because when I pray, and I gave you months ago the seven things I pray for me and my family every day as I'm praying that we will be whole. I say, God, I pray we will be whole spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, vocationally, financially, and relationally. You know one thing on the mental part of that that I've added? Because I always, on the, on the mental part, I say, God, help us to focus on you today, mental wholeness, focus on you. Take every thought captive. Respond to the devil's lies with truth. No second guessing. And no rationalization. Sometimes the devil will put a thought in your mind like he did with Eve. The devil said to Eve, has God really said you shall not eat, you know, eat this food and so on and then Eve got in a conversation with the devil let me give you some good advice tonight don't ever get in the conversation with the devil the devil is smarter than you and he's much smarter than I am if the devil puts a thought in your mind quote a scripture at him if he puts a fear in your mind tell him you're trusting Jesus and the scripture says if you will resist the devil that is you stand against the devil he will flee from you now he may not flee immediately even Jesus had to it took three temp Jesus had to quote scripture three times, but finally the devil left. And so, don't no rationalization. But one of the things I've added in my prayer for, my, for me and my family, it's mainly for me, I guess, on this, because I don't think they have trouble with it like I do. I say, God, help me not to be in a hurry in my mind. Because my mind can get to going so fast, and I'm sure yours can too, that it's just like sometimes I just feel like my head's fixing that my brain's going to come out of my head. And I say, God, just slow me down. And he led me to a scripture verse that's really helped me with this. In, the, in Isaiah 28, 16, 
Now, here's how the New King James says it. Isaiah 28, 16. Whoever believes will not act hastily. You may be thinking tonight about making a hasty, quick decision. Let that be the word for you tonight. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And when I read that, I thought, now, God, part of acting is thinking. And so I'm praying that not only will I not act hastily and go out and make decisions, you know, just hasty decisions, but God, help me not to think hastily. Slow my mind down. Uh, anxiety is, the, the, at the core of anxiety is thoughts going out of control. They're just, it's just too fast. Your, the mind becomes flooded with thoughts. And what we have to learn to do is to slow our minds down. And we can do that. We have authority over our, over our own minds. But God wants to slow us down. So whatever your personality type is, think about how much better your life would be if you went at life with a slower pace and if you had a slower thought process as you went through the day, a more deliberate, slower thought process. So that's number one. Number two way God wants to change our personality, God calms us down. He calms us down. This is getting into the anxiety. But I quoted Philippians 4, 6, and 7 a minute ago out of the, new, out of the, out of the Living Bible. Let me quote it now to the New King James. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so the Scripture is, is teaching here about meditation. Meditation is a powerful thing. You know, when we hear meditation, in the, in the world today, you know what the world's idea of meditation is? It's influenced by Eastern religions. And Hindu, the Hindu religion and the Buddhist religion, when they talk about meditation, what, they're, what they mean by that is get in a quiet place, turn the lights down, light a candle, and empty your mind out. Well, that can be helpful. I'm not against turning the lights down, lighting a candle, and, and, and I'm not against in, emptying your mind out. But I will say this, that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is not trying to empty your mind out and relieve yourself of all the anxiety and burdens and problems from your own mind in a quiet room with a candle going. There's nothing in the Bible about that. Biblical meditation, you listen and say amen. I'm saying, what I'm saying is this is about to be good. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is unloading your mind, unloading your burdens, unloading your anxious thoughts onto Jesus, and trusting Him with that. And part of biblical meditation is giving it to Jesus. Part of biblical meditation is letting Jesus speak to you through His Word and through His Spirit. But God wants to calm us down. If you, I did this years ago when I was going through a time in my life, about five years ago. I had overextended myself at church. I was, I was doing too much. And I just... I couldn't slow my mind down. My, that's what was happening. I couldn't sleep. My brain, my brain just going like that. And God led me, and I've mentioned this before, this verse, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And there was a time in my life, I, I applied that verse to me, I went into the presence of God for 30 minutes a day and didn't say anything. I just sat. And there was something about 
taking that verse literally, King David went in and sat before the Lord. Sometimes the best thing you can do in your prayer time is to sit there and say nothing and just think about God. And as Charles Stanley says, put your mind in neutral and let God be God. Maybe he'll speak to you, maybe he won't. But I'll guarantee you, that anxiety season that I was going through, 30 minutes a day, sitting silently before God, that was a mighty healer for me and something that helped me to come back to, to more of a, of a normal, uh, slowed-down mindset. So God calms us down when we just sit in his presence. You don't always have to fill prayer time up with words. Sometimes that's not the best thing to do. Number three, I wish I had time to develop all these. Number three, God tones us down. Sometimes God says, you need to just tone it down. Let me give you a scripture. James chapter 1 and verse 19. Let every person be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The next verse says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so God wants to tone us down. I'm working on a booklet right now in Proverbs. Some of the greatest verses from the book of Proverbs. We're working on that. Hopefully have it ready in November. We'll see. But uh, how many verses in Proverbs say something like, a wise person calms his spirit. Uh, a, 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 a righteous person doesn't give full vent to his feelings. We have to learn to tone it. God's, God is in the process, I can guarantee you, of toning us down. The best example I know in the New Testament, James and John, when they were in their 30s, full of passion and zeal, they went into a village one day, the people were disrespectful to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven and we'll just scorch all these people. And Jesus looked at them as if to say, no, that, that wouldn't be the way I want to do this. He gave them the name Sons of Thunder. James died early. John lived 60 plus more years. And at the end of his life, he became the apostle of love. The guy who earlier on was wanting to call down fire from heaven at the end of his life is saying, can we not just all love one another and get along? Well, what happened? God changed his personality. I'm not saying he changed his personality type. He changed his personality within his type. He, he still had the fire and the passion, but he became meek. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Meekness, strength under control. That word is talking about a, a wild horse that has been broken. That horse has the same strength after it's been broken than it did before it was broken. But that's, that horse is under control. And then the next one, listen to what I'm saying. God's going to change our personality. Some of you, you know, your idea towards your personality is can a leopard change its spots? I, this is who I am and it's who I'll always be. Let me tell you something. A leopard can't change his spots, but God can change his spots. God can change his spots and God can change our personalities. He slows us down, he calms us down, he tones us down, and he softens us. He softens us up. Instead of being harsh and assuming the worst with people, he softens us up. I'll give you an example. You give me permission to go one minute over? If you will, say amen. Today I was coming home from running an errand, and I would say for the last six weeks to eight weeks, at the end of my street has been a Bud Light beer can that must have been run over a hundred times. And I keep thinking, surely somebody, you know, one of these houses down here by where that can is, they're going to pick it up, throw it in the trash. Maybe the trash, when the trash people come by, maybe they'll pick it up. I drive by that thing multiple times a day, and it's still there. And so today, 
I said, enough is enough. I'm picking it up, and I'm throwing it away because I'm tired of looking at it. And uh, so I picked it up, put it in my car, took it into my garage, threw it in my trash can. Let's play like, now this is a morbid illustration, but let's just play like that I die. And a month after I die, some of you good Samaritans come to my family and say, Pastor, Dottie, Joel, Jody, Charlie, Joe, and, and Joel, listen, we know y'all are sad about John, and, and uh, we're sad about it, and he's got his house over there, and, and we don't want y'all to have to go and clean everything up over there in that house. And let, let us help you with that. And they say, oh, we can't thank you enough. We were dreading that. And so you go over there, and you're getting my clothes and getting everything, and, and you get in my garage, and, and for whatever reason, instead of just throwing the, garage, the trash out on the street, you start digging through my, my trash bag. And you find a Bud Light can. And you say, well, the stress got to him. He turned to the bottle. He turned to the can. He couldn't handle it. And now I'm in heaven. I'm not here to defend myself, right? It would be easy to think, well, oh, John, he told us he didn't drink. And now look at what he was over here doing in his house. What I'm saying is, when God softens us up, God helps us to look at a situation like that and give the person the benefit of the doubt. While I'm still living, let me say this. I've never had a Bud Light. I've never had a Bud Full, okay? I never had a Bud. But I'm saying, what God does, He gives us the ability to look at something and say, well, you know what? It seems like this is the case. It appears to be. But you know what? I'm going to give Him the benefit of that. In 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, love believes all things, it doesn't mean love is gullible and naive. It means love believes the best about the other person. You see, when God begins to, to change our personality, what does God do? God gives us the ability to do what? To give other people the benefit of the doubt and to watch this, assume the best instead of assuming the worst. 